Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. We're currently in the middle of a series of discussions about healthcare and healthcare digitalization in the APEC region. A few episodes ago, you were able to hear from Dr. Selina Chu, founder of Medic Footprints Malaysia, who talked about the healthcare system, healthcare opportunities for doctors there. Malaysia has really good conditions for startups, early stage startups. In Malaysia, we have this term called Bole Lan. Bole basically means uh, can or the ability to do something. So when people say Bole Lan, it just means a land where anything is possible. And by that, I mean anything from finding business opportunities to finding problems that you want to solve. It's actually really easy. So building a startup from small to medium, it's not too difficult. But I guess the difficulty lies when a startup wants to grow from medium to large because uh, we haven't had that infrastructure and system in place yet for that kind of thing. And another discussion we had was about Australia with Peter Bursch, host of Talking Health Tech, who, among other things, mentioned that Australia could benefit from telemedicine, but the infrastructure is not strong enough to support it. We've got a lot of space between people who give care and receive care and also communities in that are underrepresented and that need access to healthcare, but also need access to the technology to, to be able to do virtual care. So there's, when I think of infrastructure, I think of a couple of things here in Australia. There's the whole telecommunications infrastructure because our internet is rubbish. Like it, it, it is absolutely trash. And there's, well, I could talk, I could whinge for a lot about how poor the internet is on, on a scale. I forget where we are on the scale globally in terms of internet capability, but it's really low compared to other parts of the world. Um, then we've got the just generally the access to the tools to be able to do telehealth in the first place in whether it's for the age and disability space or whether it's in rural and remote Australia, whether it's for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities. I think there's a lot more engagement we could be doing with these groups, communities. and Today, we're continuing the discussion about Asia-Pacific region with Dr. Karen Priyadashini, Regional Business Lead of Worldwide Health for Microsoft Asia. She leads the company's healthcare business segment across 17 markets in Asia-Pacific. Karen talked about the comparison between different markets in the APEC region and digital health trends she's observing. Enjoy the discussion and as always, for more information, visit our website facesofdigitalhealth.com. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. The next episode is going to be about Pakistan, so subscribe and stay tuned. Now let's jump in today's discussion. Karen, thanks for joining this discussion of my digging into the Asia-Pacific region. In uh, the previous episode, I talked to a doctor from Malaysia. And now with you, I think we're going to cover quite a lot of countries because you've been living in Singapore for over 15 years and have been embedded in health tech in Asia-Pacific in various roles. You've been building businesses for multinational healthcare companies such as Truven Health, 
health and are working for Microsoft. So just as a warm-up question, how would you describe the evolution of digital health in the region? How would you compare it to the West? Uh, this is a very apt question because I think we've done so much. We've made so much progress in the last two and a half years. One of the, let's say, the silver bullets for due to COVID that it's been amazing. In the last two and a half years that we or three years that we've had COVID, I think healthcare has made leapfrogs when it comes to technological advancement. Some of the very interesting things is what, you know, would take probably two years earlier on has now taken six months in terms of being more adaptive to technology. And I think one of the living proofs of this is also the vaccine that has been made available for COVID, right? Because earlier a drug would take, let's say, 10 years, 20 years, but now you have the vaccine which was ready in six months. So that itself, I think, is proof enough to say that it's been a big leap for healthcare. What about Asia Pacific specifically? The whole vaccine development was very lively across the world. But at the same time, while the uptake, for example, of digital health solutions was very fast, we see that trend is to a certain degree now going backwards. Also in, in remote work, we see that it's required more and more or expected for workers to go back in offices. So is there anything that you would say that specifically to the region, any technologies that come to mind when you think about different uh, markets? Oh, just referring to the vaccine example that I gave earlier on, you know, uh, Asia Pack was the bed for a lot of manufacturing of those vaccines. If you look at India, Bharat Biotech, they manufactured the AstraZeneca vaccines. And then if you look at Indonesia, they also kind of help manufacture some of the vaccines and then Sinovac and Sinopharm from China as well. So a lot of these vaccines actually were manufactured in this part of the world. Having said that to your question, during these years, the last few years, we've seen from an Asia-Pacific point of view, a couple of major trends, right? I would say I would put them as four different trends and happy to dig deeper later on. So the first is, of course, AI in healthcare. And when I say AI, if you just look at statistics, you will see that China and India have leapfrogged when it comes to startups building AI applications for healthcare. And I would say that's the leap ahead of, let's say, the West. That's the first one. The second major trend has been in IOMT, where you're saying, hey, it's not just cure that is important. You also have to prevent people from becoming sick. And this is where a lot of technology around Internet of Medical Things, your continuous monitoring, remote monitoring uh, has really leapfrogged. And that is more on the preventive and wellness space. The third big trend that we see in Asia Pacific, as you rightly pointed out, is around telemedicine. Remote working, being able to provide care in the comfort of your home. And, you know, also things like tele-ICU or tele-wards. That is something that really built up during these times because... When COVID was here, a lot of patients could not actually go to the hospital. So if you look at patients who are suffering from chronic diseases or even communicable diseases or non-communicable diseases, a lot of them could not actually go to the hospital. And that's where in Asia Pacific, a lot of remote care, remote wards as well, really took off. And the last one that I was sharing with you earlier is around mixed reality. And in mixed realities, we're looking at what Microsoft has as a HoloLens. We actually use that a lot in this part of the world for things like educa educating the doctors, the nurses, a simple thing like 
how do you insert a ventilator? A training for a nurse earlier would take six months. And how do you shorten that procedure to be able to do it in a 3D fashion so it's interactive, it's very, I would say, involved with a nurse, actually being very involved in the whole learning process. It's not like a textbook that you're turning the pages, but it's a very interactive, involved learning. Then the other one is around remote assist. How do you use mixed reality to assist doctors in the uh, OT or in the hospital? Because you just can't go in. And the other very interesting technology or application of that of mixed reality was around pre-surgical planning and patient consent. So it's like a flight simulator, right? Before you actually go into the surgery or complex surgery, you would like to look at which are the ways in which you need to make a cut, how do you avoid certain arteries and veins. So that has been another big area for mixed reality. So I would say these are predominantly the four. Second is around IOMT. Third is around tele, telemedicine, teleward, teleICU. And lastly, around mixed reality. You work with various stakeholders in healthcare, so hospitals, even pharmaceutical companies. And if we stick to what you explained about new technologies entering the medical space for various purposes, um, I do want to know from the practical uh, point of view, what kind of institutions do you see that can actually afford to do that? Because is it more private uh, providers. I, I took a, a, a look at the World Data Bank for some information about the percentage of GDP that's attributed to, to healthcare. And I'm just wondering to which extent that also determines how much can, let's say, public hospitals afford to actually invest in those solutions. One of the goals, let's say, or missions that Microsoft has is to empower the stakeholders. So we, when we look at technology, what we are saying is literally every client from my end for healthcare, we work with pharma, with payers and with providers, right? And providers, when you talk of hospitals, we're looking at public and private. So the whole end aim or end goal is to empower these stakeholders of ours with technology. And that does not mean that it's going to be always very expensive because when the adoption is across larger numbers of patients, the cost per patient always comes down. And your question is super interesting because during this whole, let's say, three years that we've had of pandemic, we've seen public sector actually step up. And the very fact that we had the whole COVID platform built in many of the countries has actually given public sector an idea that, hey, how about building a national health digital platform where you can have different services that you're offering to the citizen? And so when you're looking at that kind of a scale, what you're doing is you're able to make these workflows much smoother, right? So you're replacing paper-based systems. You're replacing probably people who were earlier used to do very manual jobs. Now you're automating that. So I would say in overall, it actually brings costs down. And to your question, private sector, you're absolutely right, is normally the one that leads when it comes to adoption of technology. But interestingly, in my personal experience, I've seen governments and public sector step up and say, hey, what are some of the technological innovations I can offer to my citizens to A, make health better, B, to have better patient outcomes, and C, be able to lower costs? 
So if you could pinpoint to any of the countries, feel free to do so. I'm just going to name a few numbers, a, a few different indicators to just try to compare countries and how they differ. And, and for example, China, which has the, the largest uh, percentage of funding for digital health, attributes 5.3% of GDP to healthcare, then the second largest market for digital health, India, 3%, Singapore, 4%. And we know that Singapore is like a huge hub for digital health. So 4% of GDP for healthcare, just not to confuse the audience. And then there's Australia that actually has really high healthcare expenditure, 9.91%. This is all um, data from 2019, so quite new data. And then, for example, Malaysia um, has roughly 4% of GDP uh, to healthcare. So when talking about governments being interested in digital health, do you see any uh, actual implementations already? China and India have had one of the maximum number of startups in healthcare. Uh, in the last three to four years and had both China and India have been manufacturing vaccines. So the proportion that they have allocated for healthcare is very close to the numbers that you shared. And when it comes to uh, Singapore and Australia, they are very mature markets when it comes to healthcare, right? In a way, Australia mimics what in the US and when it comes to Singapore, it's a different model, but you actually have a lot of interesting innovations that are being made in Singapore as well. And in both these markets, the governments have been very active. For example, in Australia, some of the initiatives are around recently around building platforms, a national platform where you're able to get all the citizens who are vaccinated. To, you know, you have that data so that who's been vaccinated, who's not, who are the ones who are having any kind of adverse events. So if you look at China and India, specifically if you look at India, you have the national telemedicine platform called eSanjeevni that is coming up. And I think last year or probably the year before, the National Digital Health Mission was actually announced by the Prime Minister Narendra Modi as well. There's a lot of work that the governments are doing there in building out national health platforms, data platforms, where they're able to assess the health of the citizen so that you're able to provide better care uh, at the point of care, which is at the hospital. And what's your opinion about the national health data platforms? They they are growing in numbers uh, in terms of uh, how many countries across the world are either already implementing them or thinking about them. The end experiences of those that already have them are different. So what's your take and what do you see? So we have, I would put them all in two groups, those who already have the national digital health platform and those who are building it out or are in the process of initiating it. I think COVID has been a unifying factor where governments realize that, hey, you know, I really need to have a platform where I understand the profile of my population much better. And one of the offshoots of this has been the genomic side as well, that Singapore, Korea, China and India as well, the gene profiling has really upped during the last few years. And what I would say is for those countries where there is already a digital platform like Singapore, for example, where we already have NGEMR, which is like a unified electronic medical record across all the hospitals of Singapore, they are doing is to go to the next level. So the next level would be how do you bring in the private healthcare folks? How do you bring in private services, healthcare services? So for example, like labs, how do we bring them in into this unified data platform? How do we bring in GPs, general physicians? Because 
finally, it's the whole patient flow, right? Whether I go to a community center or I go to a private healthcare or I go to a public hospital, how do you track the health journey of a patient? So that I would say is level two, which some of the countries are looking at. So if you look at even Australia, they have now a national digital platform for COVID and they're saying, hey, how can I incorporate this into uh, chronic disease management where and Australia has multiple states. So we pilot it in one state and then we see how successful that is and then move to the other states. And in public sector, it takes time, right? It's not the sheer size is so big. People are at countries are at different stages where they're experimenting, piloting. And then once it's successful, moving to the next level. And then given this kind of outcomes that you see with a common grid, you do look at markets like Indonesia, Malaysia, where they are going out to build in partnership with, let's say, pharmaceutical companies or in partnership with Telco as well. And the interesting thing here is that in many of these markets, Telco has stepped up in a big way and said, hey, how is it that we can, because they have data of so many consumers. So they're saying, how can we step up and support the government in building this national health platform or data platform and it could have different services health it could have your telco or whatever but having that one national grid that different players can plug into in a very interoperable way so while you can do your own little thing but you also are part of the national grid and that has been something that is a beautiful outcome of the last three years of COVID battles that we have fought. Is Singapore the closest market to you, given that you live in Singapore? Uh, yes and no. So normally before COVID, Singapore would be the country that I would be in on Saturdays and Sundays, Monday to Friday, because I cover multiple markets. I work across Australia, greater China, and as well as what we call a Southeast Asian market as well. So I do have multiple countries that I work with. And what are you observing in terms of the use of data standards, in terms of just approach to interoperability? What kind of efforts are in play? Who are the exemplars in the region, according to your observation? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. So one, of course, what we are looking at is interoperability, right? Because of the simple problem that healthcare is extremely fragmented. You have multiple players, you have multiple sectors, you have multiple products, multiple services. So how do you kind of bring all this in a very interoperable way? And when you do that, compliance, security, privacy becomes very important because healthcare data is one of the most complete data sets. And you may wonder why. If you look at the health data sets, you have the medical data, you have financial data, your credit cards, your payments, you have your socio-demographic data like your male, gender, what is your age, what's your BMI, what are some of the non-medical data as well. And now with smart wearables coming in, you're collecting a lot of your vitals as well, right, through your smart wearables. So in a way, it's the most complete data set. And you will see that if you just even search, you will see there are multiple hacks that happen on this healthcare data. So security, compliance, privacy becomes important. And we do have different health standards like HIPAA compliance, GDPR. You also have local country standards as well. But the interesting part here is that we also are in dialogues with, with countries where we're saying, how do you classify your data? All data is not equally sensitive. So is there some data that is very sensitive, very confidential? Could be that your billing data might be less sensitive 
or you could have another point of data like your wearables or your images, which could be treated with a different level of sensitivity. And the whole purpose of this is to keep the data very secure, but at the same time, use that data for analytics. And you mentioned earlier on that analytics is one of the key points in healthcare. So how do you do operational analytics? How do you reduce by identifying outliers? And what do I mean by that? One doctor could actually treat a fever for 100 USD and another doctor could treat it for 30 USD. So how do you reduce costs? How do you have benchmark? And then the other one is around clinical analytics, right? How do you have better outcomes? Can we prevent uh, patients from becoming chronically sick? by identifying them well in advance. So that's another type of analytics. And then you have wellness. So given the profile citizens, is there a way, what are some of the nudges that we can do to keep people healthy for a longer period of time? So these are some of the very interesting ways data plays that one sees in this part of the world. If we go back to the different sizes of uh, the market in the digital health sense, according to Gallen Growth Asia, last year China took the highest amount of funding, as I mentioned earlier, so 58.6% for digital health. India took 22.3%, Australia followed but with 5.6% of um, the funding, then in South Korea 4.3% and Singapore 3.8% if you just mentioned the top countries. Can you reflect a little bit on your observations on these markets? How do you look at them? How are you thinking about health tech development when Microsoft is trying to enter these markets? I can give a very macro view on that. If you go back to what I'd shared earlier, China and India have been the biggest base of a lot of startups that have actually mushroomed <clears throat> in this part of the world. So if you look at the, just the number of AI startups in China and India, it's it just in healthcare I'm talking about. It's just amazing. And that's where I think Gallon Growth is looking at because they work with a lot of startups. They see how much of the funding that has been raised by these startups. So I would say, and even Taiwan for that matter, because Taiwan has also had a lot of interesting startups around the medtech space as well. So I would say that these numbers, I think in Microsoft as well, we're already present in all these markets. And Microsoft, as we work with about, I think, 6,000 plus partners globally in healthcare. And this is where a lot of these startups are, in a way, funded, supported when they are on Azure, which is the Microsoft cloud. And this is where Microsoft works very closely with these startups in getting them to be co-sell ready and then taking their solutions globally as well. So if you look at China, there's a lot of go global movement where some of these solutions are actually even being adopted in Europe or even the US for that matter. So I would say there's a leveler in terms of technology where, you know, earlier all the innovation would happen in the US probably or in Europe. But now as you sh as the figures you shared, there's been a lot of innovation that's sprouted from APAC as well. Are there any AI-related solutions that you see in practice and stand out for you? Because when it comes to AI, there's probably more dilemmas than solutions. And even when you have solutions, there's challenges with transferring the, the, the models, uh, so the AI models from one institution to a different institution, or there's just concern yeah. that there's going to be too much bias and that the algorithm is not going to be accurate over time. So any solutions that you see that really made a difference already and are not just in the research phase? 
Yeah. So if you look at just pure AI, there's been a lot of progress that we've done with AI and machine learning in just the development of vaccines as well. So by using machine learning to help identify protein fragments, the vaccines for COVID-19 were actually developed in much shorter periods of time than before. And even during the COVID time, AI kind of helped in analyzing crowd temperature data, you know, thermal screening, so that people with fever could be identified as potentially sim symptomatic individuals. And also uh, in this part of the world, AI was used for facial recognition to make it to be able to identify individuals, even if they were wearing a mask, like somebody wants to enter into a facility, um, you don't have to remove your mask and expose yourself. So AI can help to identify people, even when the mask was mandatory. And some of the other very interesting capabilities we've seen is around AI in diagnosis and drug development. So you know that in health, in, in healthcare industry, machine learning is extremely helpful for the development of new pharmaceuticals and the whole efficiency of the diagnosis process. How do you reduce the drug development period or the time that is required? The other very interesting one is around NLP, natural language processing. Chatbots have the potential to improve the efficiency of things like telehealth or telemedicine. And chatbots powered by NLP, they aren't really being used now for primary diagnosis but they can actually be used to assist the process. So, for example, like symptom checkers, be able to triage the symptoms. So they are very well equipped to help obtain information from patients before actually treatment can begin. The other one, of course, a lot of AI has been used around telemedicine, the evolution of remote care, uh, also around mixed reality and what we know as augmented reality. AI has played a great role over there. And finally, last but not the least, around IoT, right, wearables uh, in healthcare, we do see uh, a lot of capabilities of AI being used there as well. So those are some of, I would say, the broad areas where we do see a lot of applications of AI in healthcare. Do you see that the uh, different healthcare system structures impact uh, how you do business in each market? Oh, absolutely. That's a super, super interesting question. Some markets like Australia is totally publicly funded, right? So the government funds healthcare. And then you have interesting markets like Japan, where again, it, you have government enforces insurance. So your health is covered, but the healthcare is services are provided by private healthcare. So these are not public hospitals, but these are private hospitals and you have government coverage or insurance for getting your care at these private hospitals. And then you have countries like Singapore. Countries like India, for example, it's still private play where you get yourself covered through insurance and then you go to these private hospitals and get your care done. And then you have countries like Singapore where the model is totally different, where you have coping. So the patient pays a small portion, but the government subsidizes a massive portion of that. But then you don't have you what we call a CPF, where you use your own money to fund the care that you would need when you grow old. And then this, again, is also coupled with private insurance that citizens can opt for. So there are different models that we see. And I think you're right that digital innovation probably is also commensurate with the type of model you have. But honestly, it's very difficult to say that this particular model has had the highest traction for digital innovation or digital care. I think it's all different types of models that have developed over time. But I think a couple of things 
that underlie each of these is how interoperable is that data so that you're able to make sense, you're able to prevent people from becoming sick. Because finally, the cost burden for governments, irrespective of the type of model you have, is going to increase. So the whole focus is on how do you prevent, keep people to the left, of the, the keep the population to the left. What that means is prevent them from becoming sick. I'll give you a simple example. Like in Singapore, I would say predicted that one in five Singaporeans are going to be diabetic by 2050. So the whole aim of the government is how do I manage these chronic diseases? So it's interesting that the burden is going to increase. How do you bring data together so that you're able to profile your population in a digital platform and be able to intervene in a very personalized way so that you're able to prevent people from, you know, being sick. And once they're sick, how do you keep them for a longer period of time? I have a, an additional question about the comparison uh, of markets. So, for example, given that you also work with specific healthcare providers and hospitals, I wonder what kind of cultural differences do you see in terms of the relationships between healthcare workers in these institutions? Because they can be determined by culture, that's one thing, and just by the ratios of how many healthcare workers are where. Uh, to be uh, a little bit more specific, I looked at the numbers of physicians per 1,000 people and nurses and midwives per 1,000 people. And in China, you've got uh, two doctors per 1,000 people and 2.7 midwives or nurses. But for example, in Australia, there's 3.8 doctors per 1,000 people, which is a really high number uh, looking at it globally. But they actually have 13.2 nurses and midwives per 1,000 patients, which is a huge number. I guess the other country that also has a high number of nurses per population is also Singapore, where you've got 2.3 physicians per 1,000 people and six nurses. To to recap, in China, it's 2 against 2.7, Singapore 2.3 against 6, and Australia 3.8 against 13. So Australia really does have a lot of nurses. And I, when you talk to doctors and nurses, there's always either a hierarchy. We do talk about the increased partnership between the two just workforces. So I'm just wondering, what are your observations? Because this also impacts how technology is adopted and how fast you can actually implement uh, things in public institutions. Yeah, so probably I will break this down into a few parts, right? So the first thing is, I think technology adoption can happen whether you have fewer people or more people. But you're absolutely spot on that the fewer people you have, the more skewed the ratio is. So you definitely would need more technology to assist you in healthcare. So that is definitely true. And you can see that in the numbers as well. The other thing is that if you look at culture, I think it is more specific to the model that is rather than the culture. Because I honestly um, feel that A, the model and the amount of money that has been invested in healthcare has a greater bearing on the number of people that you have uh, number of doctors or nurses that you see per population. If you look at, for example, Australia, the reason why you have probably higher number of nurses is also because it's a totally publicly funded. And so therefore, you cannot say no to a patient. You have to have the the services that the citizens would require because that's the only option that citizens have. But if you look at, let's say, 
uh, places like India, for example, you have public, not so much, but you have a lot of private players that come in. And so I think that is probably one of the factors, A, in terms of the model that is operating, B, in terms if there is greater number of private players, then probably you have lesser or a more skewed ratio when it comes to nurses or doctors versus patients. Based on the numbers that you're giving, I'm just thinking that could be one of the reasons. Secondly, it could also be in terms of the amount of investment. Some markets are more mature. So if you look at Australia, you look at Japan, these markets have adopted, let's say, healthcare reforms much earlier than many of the other markets. If you look at Singapore as well, you will see that the advances that they have made have been much earlier, much faster. So I think that has a big bearing on um, the ratio that you were talking about as well. But having said that, I think one of the variables we need to look at is the base population of the country, because that's where you're looking at patients versus doctors. Some of these countries like China and India have massive populations. And the other thing that I wanted to say is that despite these good numbers and ratios in some of the countries, all have experienced severe shortage when it came to healthcare during the last three years. So that kind of an epidemic has had nobody prepared. So that is the two things that I would like to add. I wonder what the numbers are today because many of these statistics are from 2019. Mm. So that's basically pre-pandemic numbers. Given that you mentioned how much the healthcare policy can impact the uptake of innovation, do you have any comments regarding China? China started a huge reform in uh, 2011, so it's been uh, 10 years later, the reports, official reports say that just the numbers of everything, of resources have increased. We know how it is with public information about China. It may be um, a rosier on the official side than it is in practice. So I just wonder, how do you observe the development in China? Oh, splendid question. I've been working in China for the last 15 years. I work very closely with China, Taiwan, Hong Kong. And you're absolutely spot on. The reform that the governments had initiated in 2011 have impacted healthcare a lot. And when I say that, in China, again, while you do have central policies in place, the implementation is at the province. And so what we have seen is If you go back like at least like 15 years ago, the ratio of public hospitals to private hospitals would be something like 80 or 85 and 15. But if you go, if you look at it today, you see that public versus private is almost 50, which means that even though the government has been investing, what they do realize is that uh, in terms of digital innovations, uh, in terms of being able to provide very, I would say, specific type of care, the private players also can be good partners. So if you look at it now, you will see that citizens go to both public hospitals and private hospitals. Earlier, they had the only option of being able to go to public hospitals where care may not have been as efficient as, let's say, what you provide at the private level. But having said that, I think one of the key aims that the government has been looking at is in being able to reduce the cost of care. And I'm sure you would have heard that a few years ago, many years ago, I think five, six years ago, the government came down very strongly on the drug prices as well. So they want to control the drug prices and say, 
if you're able to maintain it at the level they desire, they would be able to give you the volume. So I think it has been a battle on multiple fronts uh, when it comes to China. One is in being able to standardize care. For example, they do not yet have electronic medical records, a single unified electronic medical record. We're still not there. But having said that, you do see that private players have come in a big way and the government has been trying to cap uh, the cost of healthcare so that as the population grows and as people grow older, the same problem of aging population of the silver lining has been growing bigger and bigger. So those are some of the initiatives that you do see have become very prominent in the last few years. We talked earlier about some of the technologies that uh, are developing in different markets. You compared uh, the Asia-Pacific region to the West in terms of AI development and mentioned India and China. Anything else that you would like to mention that is culture or market specific in terms of development. So, for example, one of the speakers in this series of discussions about Asia and Pacific is going to talk about Pakistan. And especially during COVID, they were going through a lot of efforts to implement telemedicine. And when we talk about telemedicine, we often just have this imagination in our heads about just video conferencing um, and video calls on the computer on or on a smartphone, but it actually can be just through mobile phones because feature phones are still prevalent, for example, in Pakistan. Just to maybe mention, Pakistan attributes 3.38% uh, of GDP to healthcare, so a relatively low number. And it has a really low number of physicians, just 1.1 per 1,000 people, and that's the pre-pandemic number. Mm. I think what you touched upon is around, so telemed is not just video calls, right? So when you look at telemed today, in the face of technology, you're looking at A, firstly, triaging. So when a person picks up the phone and calls, do you have a bot who can answer some of your questions? And can you do a symptom checking? It's a simple triaging, like do you have fever? Do you have cold? How many days? Or do you have any pain? Have you had COVID before? Things like that. So the second step is around symptom checking, triaging. And then, of course, if let's say the person is positive, how do you dispatch tests? Let's say the person does not have a test. How do you dispatch a test so that they're able to do a quick test? At the same time, if the person is very sick, are you able to send an ambulance to that patient's home to be able to pick them up and inform the hospital as well that this patient is coming in? And within Microsoft, we also have partners with solutions where they would inform HR to say that this person is reported sick with COVID and so will not be able to come for work for five days or should not be allowed into the facility, for example. So the telemedicine is the whole thing, right from you pick up the phone to when you actually have the call and get the medication. But coming back to your example of Pakistan that you shared, you see the amount of technological capabilities that you have depends a lot on the amount of money that you're also investing uh, in technology, for example. So you do, like you mentioned about mobile, right? Uh, mobile penetration. So if you look at the Philippines, for that matter, the mobile penetration is almost more than 80 to 90 percent. And they don't have landlines. Most of the work is done on phones. And you will see, and Korea as well. So Korea, the internet penetration, for that matter, is I think 98%. So if you stop anybody on the road and ask them, hey, where is the supermarket? They can quickly flip out their phone and show you the direction on how to reach there. So I would say when you look at culture in a very broad way, A, the investment, B, 
the push from the government, right, on being on digitalizing is very important because it involves skilling, it involves adaptation, adoption, and so on. But thirdly, also the internet penetration, as well as, let's say, mobile penetration, 5G penetration. These are the, some of the things that aid and assist, if I can put them all together collectively as the word culture, they assist the digital advancement of a country. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast because it really, really helps other listeners interested in digital health find the show as well. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.